podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yo, happy Thursday morning. Welcome back to the pod, boss man. Hey. We are here with an entrepreneurial origin story. In fact, today's guest has built a business in the last four years that has revenues in the low seven figures, and he now employs five employees. It's fair to say a total life changer, but part of the reason I like these origin stories is that there's a moment for every one of us when we really, truly did not believe that this sort of thing, like we're talking about, low seven figures, five employees, living wherever you want sort of thing. I think for all of us, there was a point when we didn't believe it could be us. The whole time. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. One of the things I want to address before we get into today's interview is, call me a broken record, but there's a little bit of a misrepresentation of what you see online about what's happening in this lifestyle business space. One of the simple things, Ian, is that we're not all sitting on a beach somewhere. We're not necessarily even in exotic locations. So many of us build businesses like this simply because we want to be able to spend time with our family or in our hometown or with our friends because so many in our generation and generations before had had to leave to go find work elsewhere. And the reality is, is that so many of the folks that are listening to this show are actually highly successful entrepreneurs that are hanging out in small provincial towns in England or all around the world. And in the case of today's guest, just outside of Dallas, Texas. So let me do just a quick Cliff's Notes here, Ian. Today's guest, Alan Walton, has spent most of his 30 years in Dallas there because he's close with his family and his wife's family. And For me, that's one of the best things about creating a location-independent lifestyle business. One of the trickier things, though, Ian, is that part of the reason there's a lot of misapprehension about lifestyle businesses is that, frankly, it's it's very difficult to find founders of them. Even if you're in a so-called hub, even if you are, you know signaling with your MacBook on some tropical beach somewhere. (laughs) It really is hard to find people, you know? It's hard to find people that get what we're doing. Still in 2018, I'm still struggling to explain to people what it is I do. And that's why it's just so amazing to be able to go to events like the ones that we're hosting like here in Barcelona this week, just because it's like, ah, you get it. I don't have to explain this stuff. So today we're going to talk about just how tough entrepreneurship can be when you're in that position. And that was the position certainly that me and you, Ian, were in, where it was me and it was you. And I'm glad we had each other because we didn't have much else. I'm imagining Alan, this happening to Alan today's guest, because this always happens to me, like going into the sandwich shop on like a Tuesday and then like going back in again on the Thursday and and the guy like making the sandwich is kind of looking at me like, do you work nearby? Do you live nearby? <laughs> What's going on? You know, there's a lot of that, especially in the suburbs. If you're rocking a seven figure business, working from home, hanging out with your family, getting to know Alan, today's guest has been a pleasure. And I am excited with you, Dan, to share his story. 
A lot of good stories on today's show, including cold emailing, Shark Tanks, Mark Cuban, why Alan lost so many of his formative years to online gaming. Also, Ian, look, the way to get into this world is not to do it casually on the side or to buy some program by some guru who supposedly knows what you should be doing with your life. For me, it's about doubling down, looking inward, and doing your own thing better. You know, sometimes I think if you can't be the best employee at the job that you currently have, how can you expect to grow a great business? Rather than fantasizing about doing something completely different, it's about doing what you're already doing better. And today's story is about that. Alan is the founder of spyguy.com. They sell surveillance equipments, stuff like hidden cameras, covert audio recorders, stuff I use basically, Dan, when we're having our private meetings that you don't know about. (laughs) He's built this website, Dan, over the last four years. Again, turns over low seven figures, five employees. And the one thing I want to say about Alan, he is someone who is committed, and I really mean this, to paying it forward in our community of entrepreneurs, sharing his experience in our workshops. He's also brought people to our events on his own dime as scholarships. So it's really encouraging to see someone like Alan, who's had his own success, also encouraging new entrepreneurs to have theirs. All right. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's story. So today we got started by asking Alan a little bit about his family background. So my parents actually had their own business when I was growing up. So like in junior high and high school, they had a manufacturing company, clothing. So they actually made uniforms for movies and museums and reenactors. And so they actually had, you know, just a giant manufacturing place with maybe like a dozen employees, you know, sitting at sewing machines, making custom made outfits for people who were into that sort of thing. And so... After school, you know, my parents would pick me up and then I'd have to spend the rest of the day with them there. And so I didn't realize it at the time, but I was just kind of picking up on stuff like how to talk to customers over the phone, how to manage employees, you know, cleaning. I was sweeping floors and sometimes just doing stuff for like, you know, $6 an hour or whatever. You know, looking back on that, I guess that's like kind of the seeds of the entrepreneurship thing. But you know, after high school, I was just a complete loser for like a few years and I didn't do anything at all. And I had no plans of being an entrepreneur. And I guess the opportunity came up, you know, several years ago. And I think they're pretty pleased with how things have turned out. What sort of challenges did you see them face with that business when you were young? I've actually been pretty acutely aware of like family money troubles, like since I was like in elementary school, stuff that kids that age probably shouldn't really be worried about. But I would hear my parents talking about money issues and paying employees. And there were other instances where, like, people were stealing their ideas and things like that. There were lawsuits and things like that that I was aware of. Employees not showing up and that sort of thing. And also my dad did, this was like in the early age of e-commerce. So everything was actually mail order when they first started. Like, they had a physical catalog that they were mailing out to people. And handing out at like a booth at like a Valley Forge reenactment or something like that. They'd get a check in the mail from somebody who was going to get their stuff like six weeks later. And then my dad would like be building his website like 
there wasn't an e-commerce platform or anything like that. So he had to learn, I think it was Adobe Go Live. And so he had to dabble with that and then do all of his own accounting and do all of his own inventory and stuff. And so I was just very aware of how difficult it was to run your own business like that. You describe yourself as a loser. What, what do you mean by that? There's this game when I graduated high school and it's called World of Warcraft. And basically it's a MMORPG, a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. There were like 20 million people that played it at the time. And it's basically like Lord of the Rings or something like that, where you just create a character and you go on quests and like do stupid stuff with like 40 other people for like 12 hours a day. I was taking college classes at like the local community college and stuff. But, you know, if I wasn't doing that, then I'd open up my laptop and be playing a game forever and going to bed at like 3 a.m. And I just wake up and do it all over again. It was really pretty sad. Well, how long did, did this go on for? Four years, five years, something like that. Really? Yeah. I've met some people who've done this, and it does seem to be incredibly addictive and engaging. Yeah. There's a lot of different reasons why. Like what? Well, in high school, I didn't really have a whole lot of friends. I was kind of a loner, and I had really bad grades. I graduated like 430 out of like 500 kids, and... When that game came around after high school, suddenly there were like a ton of people that were just like me and I could log in and everybody's excited that I'm on and we can like go and do stuff. There's like a structure and there's like a hierarchy and like you're given responsibilities and tasks and there's like problem solving and stuff. It's very engaging and there's a lot of teamwork involved. Why hang out in the real world where you don't have any friends and, you know, are just overweight and eating a ton of food and stuff like that. Nobody wants to be around you when you could like log online and everybody else is like an exact replica of you. <laughs> How do you describe yourself at the time going through a high school? You're obviously a smart guy doing so poorly. I don't know. I was actually a really good student up until 10th grade, which is when high school starts here. I was getting a, a and B grades, but then I had a falling out with a bunch of people when I was like in 10th grade. I wasn't involved in any extracurriculars or anything. And all I really wanted to do was like be a rock star. This is before the World of Warcraft stuff. And so I just like play music all day and like listen to music and just I stopped taking the advanced courses and went into what we called the stupids classes, which is where just the people who have like no desire to do any schoolwork. But I think I was mostly just unchallenged. Like I think I was a bright kid. I just didn't like what we were learning in school. I didn't see the point of it. And, you know, there was really almost no way out for me. When you were playing the Warcraft, when did you start to pump the brakes on that and be like, whoa, this might not be the best thing for me? There were a couple turning points. I had actually started working full time at my first job. The video game thing diminished. And I realized that it was just, you know, it was taking up so much time and effort. It was like a lifestyle. And I didn't really want to do that. I started, I was introduced to like Tim Ferriss at the time. He had just come out with the four hour body. I vividly remember this. How old are you, by the way? Just to set the stage. Are you living with your parents at this time? I'm living with my parents. Yeah. At the time I find out about Tim Ferriss, I'm 23 years old, five years out of high school. I'm walking around the downstairs of my parents' house where I was, where I've been living forever And I hear my dad on the phone in his office. 
he says, yeah, this guy like races motorcycles and tango dances and all this really bizarre stuff. And he speaks like 10 languages. And this kind of like perks up my ears. And I'm like, who are you talking about? And he goes, oh, this guy's got some book out called The 4-Hour Body. And so I remember going on Amazon and looking at 4-Hour Body on there. And then I clicked on the guy's name because I wanted to see what it looked like. And I'm like, oh, okay. This guy's like pretty young. Oh, he's got this other book called The 4-Hour Workweek. And and you know how that goes. (laughs) So I saw that book and I'm like, whoa, wait, what is this? (laughs) That was one of the major things for sure. Like that really got the ball rolling. What was your first job? For my first job, I was scooping cookie dough and putting it into a a container so it could be frozen and then sold online. So you're a gamer, you're a a yogurt scooper, you're living with your parents. Frozen ice cream, yeah. (laughs) Frozen ice cream scooper. You're reading the four-hour work week. Right. And so... I actually ended up getting a job at a place called Micro Center, which is kind of like a Best Buy. And I was just a cashier there. I really wanted to be selling Apple computers because they had an Apple section. I actually thought that that was why I was hired. But no, they just stuck me in the cashier. And so I had to do that for like a couple of months. And I kind of used that as like a stepstone to getting a job at a surveillance company that was here in Dallas. So you're working at the surveillance company. How's that going? It kind of sucked. Basically, there's been this spy shop that has been in Dallas like since I was a kid. And I always wanted to go in, but it was really scary looking. So I never went in. But I'd eat next door at the pancake house that was there all the time. And they had a help wanted sign out front. And my mom made me apply for it. (laughs) And so I applied for it. And I never heard back. And then I actually, for some reason, something made me actually go inside and ask about the application. And I guess somebody found that as a good quality and a future employee. And so I had an interview there and I ended up getting the job. They called it a sales floater. So basically they had four different locations and each location had its own store manager. There was one day a week where the manager would get a day off and I'd have to fill in for them. And when I wasn't doing that, I'd be like sweeping floors and doing inventory and things like that. And actually kind of sucked because like on the second day, my manager who had no role in hiring me and like hated me, she like made me cry because I went next door to get a hamburger and bring it back to the office to eat real quick. And she said I wasn't taking the job seriously enough and just like berated me. And I like had never had anything like that happen. So at this moment, what do you think in your future looks like? I don't know, man. I was really just coasting. I had like nothing going on. I was wandering pretty aimlessly. What started the fire? I found out how much money one of the sales guys at the company was making. At the time, there were four stores just in the North Texas area. And the biggest store, the guy that ran it, was making a ton of money in commissions because he had all these huge clients, like police departments and you know big corporations that were putting in orders. And I found out how much money he was making in commissions each month. And I was like, oh my gosh, I would love that much money. This sounds great. And so I actually started reading books on sales, I guess, poking around on YouTube, seeing, you know, what I could learn about how to talk to customers face to face and like close sales and move product. So 
I, you know, just started learning as much as I could from the other guys. I would watch them and how they talk to customers and address customers' issues and concerns. And I found it like a game almost. Like it got really interesting once I found out how to convince somebody to purchase something and not feel sleazy about it because like I honestly knew that the product would like solve their problem and that they would be really happy. I still talk to customers to this day just to, you know, find out if anything's changed, what their issues are. And it's a lot of fun. What's your favorite part about selling? I really like solving the problems. To go back to that whole loner thing, like I was just very socially awkward. But when I was in the store, I didn't know any of these people and they didn't know me. You know, I didn't necessarily have to like be myself, I guess you could say. Like I could be whoever I wanted in that moment so that the customer would see that I know what I'm talking about and that I'm confident in the product. Whereas normally in real life, I'm not really all that confident or anything like that. But I know the product so well and I can convey that to them. And to get into some of the issues, I mean, you know, when you think about like hidden cameras or covert audio recorders, like it sounds very, you know, surreptitious and stuff, but there's like a million amazing reasons that people use the stuff like the hidden cameras i talk to people like all the time that are using these to like catch elder abuse like in alzheimer homes or you have people who have like autistic children and they want to keep an eye on them and the nanny and make sure that nothing bad is happening there or people who are like being harassed at work and they need proof because nobody believes them it's really nice to be able to help people take care of issues like that because you know they're going through a lot so you're building your sales skills. Do you become the hotshot new guy? So the first five months of the company, I'm still like bottom of the totem pole. I'm still learning just the basic stuff about running like a physical product business. I'm not selling enough stuff to make commission. I'm making 10 bucks an hour. And my opportunity comes up when one of the guys, so there's four stores, one of the guys gets into a bar fight and then, like, broke into his own store and, like, bled everywhere. And he got fired the next morning. <laughs> and I became a store manager about five months after I started working at the company. It's my own store. There was nobody else there. I did everything. I was the only person there all day long. And so I got to control all aspects of it. How the products were laid out. How early I wanted to show up to open the store what inventory we actually had in stock and build relationships with people because I would be there every day and not just one day of the week like I was prior. And so that's when things really took off. I never became like the biggest salesman at the company because my store was actually rather small. But if you look at like the sales per square foot, then I was rocking it and I was making commission and I was basically making an extra like ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 a year from all the commission I was making now that I had my own store. What transpired to lead to you starting your own business? So when I was running this, I was running this physical storefront. One of my customers was a detective for a decently well-known reality TV show called Cheaters. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I've heard of it. And it's filmed in Dallas. It's like people that suspect their spouse is cheating. They go into this television show and... Yeah, so somebody thinks their spouse is cheating on them. They come to the show. Detective watches them for two weeks, gets hidden camera footage. And then they call like a meeting in a parking lot with the person that approached them. And they show them the footage. That sounds great. <laughs> so they show them the footage. 
And of course, the person is cheating on them. And so the person, the host of the show, and the camera crew all pile into like an unmarked white van and then like physically confront the cheating person in like a very public venue, like a restaurant or like a Mavs game. Or it's just ridiculous. Okay, so you're the supplier of equipment to this guy that's consulting for this show. Sort of. You know, I sell him a bunch of items. And then I get demoted at my job. So that manager that hated me, like, caught me doing something I shouldn't have been doing, which was so bogus. What did she catch you doing? So they had a bunch of, like, obsolete equipment that they wanted to unload. And so they were letting us list it on, like, eBay and Craigslist. And I took a bunch of it to my store so I could list it and sell it. And my store was so busy, I just never got around to listing it. And then she said that I was depriving the other employees of making sales because I was hoarding all this like crappy equipment. And so she demoted me, which is like an instant like $15,000 a year less. I'm basically back at square one in the company. I don't have a store anymore. I'm not making commission. It really sucked. And then... Like a week later, the guy that works for the TV show said, hey, my boss wants to meet with you for lunch. And so they take me to like this really swanky lunch place in Highland Park, which is where all the rich people in Dallas live, like Mark Cuban and George Bush and Dirk Nowitzki. And and I'm like super impressed. I'm just like some kid from the suburbs. You know, my parents never made more than like 40000 a year combined, maybe. And the guy that started the TV show wanted me to you know, start opening brick and mortar stores for him. And I was like, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. But I think you should do e-commerce because you got a national TV show and we can leverage that to reach customers that aren't in Dallas. E-commerce is up and coming, brick and mortar, a lot of overhead. Let's just do the e-commerce thing. So he took out a piece of paper and wrote down a number and then shoved it at me over the table. And I looked at it and I immediately drove to my boss's office and gave him my two weeks notice. It was 60000 and then I had a percentage of equity in the company that he was starting. Not a large percentage, even though I did all the work. I didn't know any better. I was like 24 at the time. I worked there for almost three years, and it was an amazing opportunity. I learned so much about e-commerce and hiring contractors like to build the website and about e-commerce platforms. And it introduced me to some amazing people and conferences. I learned so much from being able to learn on somebody else's dime, basically. Don't let the lack of a big budget or technology skills get in the way of you having not only a beautiful website, but a powerful one that can get your product in the hands of your customers. That's where today's sponsor, Weebly.com, comes in. Weebly is the easiest way to create an incredible looking website and you don't have to have technology skills. But more importantly, Weebly comes with a whole bunch of tools that help you sell your products, process payments, manage your inventory, and create marketing campaigns that grow your brand. And because Weebly's mission is to turn people's great ideas into successful businesses, they've built an incredible support team. So if you have a question just pick up the phone to talk to a customer success expert. There's no scripts, there's no robots, just a friendly human who can help you grow your business. That's right. Weebly.com is the quickest way to get your idea on the internet and to simplify 
your business's web presence. So if you've got a product idea and want to share it with the world, check out Weebly. You can have a beautiful, powerful online store running in a matter of hours. And because you listen to this podcast, you can visit weebly.com slash TMBA and get 15% off of your first purchase. So don't just build a beautiful website and don't spend a bunch of money on it. Build a successful online business and Weebly can help. So let's get back to Alan's story. After three years working for a company selling surveillance equipment, his relationship with those who had hired him broke down. So in 2014, he quit his job with zero equity and no backup plan. I remember thinking I'm never going to work for somebody else ever again. After I quit my job and just didn't do anything for a month, suddenly working for somebody else sounded like really good. (laughs) And so I start thinking, I'm like, all right, what would my dream job be? And I'm like, dude, I would totally work for Mark Cuban. So Mark Cuban's really well known in the US, outside not so much. He's a billionaire. He owned a website called broadcast.com that sold to Yahoo for I think like $5 billion back in the dot-com bubble. And he owns the Dallas Mavericks. He's also on the TV show Shark Tank. Dallas's most famous resident, probably. And he invests in a lot of e-commerce companies on Shark Tank. You know, I know a lot about e-commerce now. Maybe I can reach out to him and he could give me a job. And so his email address is pretty easy to find on the internet. And so I get his email address and I'm like, all right, what's the worst that could happen? I'm going to email him. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take one of his Shark Tank investments and then just do a complete teardown on their website and make like, I think it's like a list of 10 things that they can do to their website to improve sales. And I fire off this email at like midnight and then I wake up and I check my email and the CEO of this company, not Mark Cuban, but the CEO of the company that I criticize emailed me back and refuted all of my points and stuff and said that they were going to come out with a new website. And if I wanted to give feedback on that, I could. And then he also said that he wasn't interested in hiring me. But then he asked for like several points of feedback on their new web design, which he attached as a file. And so I emailed him back and I'm like, dude, I just gave you like a ton of free advice and you, you refuted all of it. And then you're asking me to give more feedback and you're not going to pay me. <laughs> No, I'm not going to do that. And I CC'd Mark on that because he CC'd Mark as well with his response. And so I send a separate email to Mark after that. And I say, hey, Mark, I think that you can realize that I'm right about what I've said here. Let me know if you want to work on something. I'd really appreciate the opportunity. And then he emailed me back like five minutes later asking for my resume. And I'm like panicking (laughs) because I don't have a resume. (laughs) And I'm like really nervous about you know, my work history. I'm like, oh, great. He's going to see I worked at a spy shop, which is like really sketchy looking. And so I I make like what I think is a nice looking resume and I send it over to him. We kind of have a back and forth and he's like really responsive. Like he's responding to stuff like within 10, 12 minutes. And so we trade like five or six emails and he emails me back and he's like, look, I think you were successful because of the TV show. But you need to prove that you can start a company and generate sales without the power of a TV show. And so he's referring to the previous company that you were running, owned by the TV guy. And he's basically saying all your traffic came 
because your owner was a famous person on TV. Right. And was he right about that? A little bit. That's definitely how we generated a lot of traffic in the beginning. But as I built up the company and we started investing in SEO and PPC and I was link building and stuff, the TV show had commercials advertising for the online spy shop. People will load up that website and just kind of browse. And that's how we got a lot of our initial traffic is just from having the TV show. But then we started getting phone calls from like radio shows that wanted to talk to us or like Huffington Post, like somebody there saw the ad and then was like, hey, this seems kind of newsworthy. And so I would like give an interview on like a TV station or I do a satellite tour. You have like six or seven interviews lined up one after the other. So this is one way in which you build links and publicity for your site. Yeah, build links that way. And then when you build links like that, Google takes notice. So you, you kind of build up authority with Google. When other really good websites link to you, then Google notices that and they think of you as a really good website. So when people did a Google search for hidden cameras, we would come up and it had nothing to do with the TV show. So Mark Cuban, famous billionaire, calls you out on the seventh email and says, Alan Walton, you're actually not that good at these things because you got it easy because you had this TV show behind your brand. So how do you respond to that? So I respond with a screenshot from Google Analytics, which I still had access to. And I point out that we're getting a lot of traffic that's completely unrelated to the TV show. And then I list a couple of other reasons. And the next day I get an email from one of Mark's like employees at Mark Cuban Companies saying that, hey, Mark sent me your email. He wanted me to interview you. Can you come in tomorrow? And so I ended up getting an interview at Mark Cuban Companies. What happened? So I drive into downtown Dallas and I sit down with this guy. He's kind of like Mark's right-hand guy as far as I could tell at the time. And we have like a 45-minute meeting and he's asking me, you know, what I know and how I can bring value to Mark's investments. And it says, hey, look, you know, it's a holiday weekend. We're stepping out of the office. I'll give you a call back next week. And I'm like, okay. And I don't hear anything back next week. So I email him and I said, hey, what's going on? And he says, give me one second, just by email. And then he emails me back later that day. And he's like, yeah, we don't have a place for you here, but we really appreciate it. And I was kind of bummed out, but I was like, you know, you just like cold emailed Mark Cuban, traded a bunch of emails with him, arguably one of the most famous people in Dallas. And he gave you a job interview that's like pretty awesome, dude. Like, don't be upset. You didn't get a job for him. You've like done something pretty amazing and you should, you know, run with it. I emailed him a year after I started my company. I'm like, Hey Mark. And I just did it as like a reply to the initial email I sent him years ago, four years ago. I'm like, Hey Mark, just wanted to let you know that I uh, ended up starting my own business and we just passed a million in sales today. And just want to say thanks because the interview was so helpful and just getting a response from you meant a lot. And he responded and he goes, great work, keep it going. <laughs> so when does spyguy.com come around? Oh yeah, we're going to get to that. By this time, Alan, 
you're mentioning that your bank account is dwindling fast. You know, you're spending all this time spending gas money, going down to Mark Cuban's offices, money that you don't have. You're on the clock. Right. So I did have savings. It was just that I hadn't adjusted my lifestyle for suddenly being unemployed. So I was down a bad path. I ended up reaching out to a guy who I consider a mentor. When I got hired by Cheater Spy Shop, the first thing I did was quit my job. And then I went to Barnes & Noble and bought Starting a Yahoo Store for Dummies. It's written by a guy named Rob Snell. And I reached out to him by email saying, hey, I bought your book. Thanks for writing it. I have a couple questions. Can you answer this? And he was really nice and found out that I was really young. And I think he kind of likes that about me because I was, I was starting a business and I was asking for help. And that's definitely one thing I've learned is that when you're young, you know, other people that are successful, like they take notice of what you're doing and they want to help. And I'm really grateful for that guy because when I quit my job at Cheater Spy Shop, reached out to Rob and he actually like, we met up in Las Vegas. He took out a yellow notepad and started coming up with ideas for me for like, what could I do if I was going to, you know, become a freelancer or start my own company? And he gave me that vote of confidence. And it was, yeah, it was a big deal for me at the time and still is. And so I flipped through for our work week and I read another book called The Millionaire Fast Lane. And I was like, you know, I can do this and I can take knowledge that I already have and do it. And so I just decided to do the surveillance thing again. It's what I knew. I had already worked at two companies. One as an employee. The second one I did all on my own. It was just that somebody gave me some financial backing and a name backing. And then this third company, I was like, all right, I'm going to own 100% of it. I get to run it exactly the way I want. And so I decided to call it Spy Guy Security, 14 bucks on name.com. And then I came up with Spy Guy. And I'm like, actually, I like that one a lot better. I end up second bedroom of my apartment, staying up till 2 a.m., learn about Shopify from the four-hour work week. I bought a $140 theme on Shopify. I knew a little bit of HTML and CSS, so I could tweak it slightly to look the way that I wanted. I got into a big argument on Reddit with somebody about logo design, and I ended up hiring him, and he came up with a logo for me. And I actually read a couple of books on pay-per-click advertising, like Google AdWords, and learned how that worked and set up all of my campaigns. And I ended up launching like two months later. I ended up getting my first sale like six hours after the website went live. And I was laying in bed and it was like 7 a.m. And I roll over and look at my phone and the Shopify app said I sold something for $149. And I let out this like orgasmic moan because I know everything's going to be okay. What challenges did you face that you didn't see coming? I got spread way too thin in the like six months after the company started because I was storing inventory in my apartment and I was taking phone calls, you know, because I'm in an industry where people want to talk before they buy something. And so I'm taking phone calls and I'm doing live chats. I'm managing four live chats while on the phone with somebody and I'm trying to pack orders so that I can go down three flights of stairs and put it into my two-door car and get to the post office before they close. Like, it was a nightmare. And then managing AdWords is like 
difficult. You got to like look at Excel spreadsheets and it was hard work and I was just spread way too thin and I started neglecting a lot of things. I didn't focus at all on SEO and my Google AdWords budget was, you know, I wasn't tweaking the campaigns like I needed to because I was too focused on other stuff. So I guess what I'm getting at is I, I hired way too late for my first hire. I should have hired somebody sooner to help me out because I was really exhausted. What do you think of the thousand day rule? This thing that we talk about on the podcast where it takes three years of running a business to make back what you were making in your professional salary. It seems like you might have gone a little bit faster than that. Yeah, I did go faster than that. But I know a lot of other entrepreneurs you know, that are in the D.C., which is your private community of location-independent store owners. I think it's largely true from the other people I've heard on the podcast, the store owners that I've met in person, people that I've met in online communities, which are tremendously undervalued. You learn so much from those online communities, man. Thousand-day rule, it's totally a thing. When was it the case that you started hanging out with other entrepreneurs, Alan? What motivated you to do that? When I started at Cheater Spy Shop, I was finally given you know, the opportunity to go to conferences and things like that. So I had learned about, well, I sold electronics. So I attended CES. I attended like a security conference that was in Las Vegas. The Consumer Electronic Show. Yes. Which is famed for being just enormous. It's huge and exhausting. It was very interesting. I got to meet a lot of other people. And it was one of the first times I actually left Dallas. I never really left Dallas before that. And so I got to meet other people that were also running businesses. And so, you know, you get together and you never want to eat alone. So you try to find somebody to have dinner with, that sort of thing. And so I just started going to conferences, SEO conference, a PPC conference, an e-commerce related conference. And I met a lot of like six and seven figure store owners and just really hit it off with them. And so I got to learn their stories. And that's just when I started really meeting other entrepreneurs. What does it mean to you to be an entrepreneur? Like it's sort of a philosophical question, but how do you define it? If other people were to ask you, what do you, what does it mean that you're an entrepreneur? The first thing that came to my mind was you're just taking, you know, ultimate control of what you do with your life and you're finding opportunities that maybe other people don't see to add value. But sometimes entrepreneurs can see stuff that other people don't. And I love that. They see an opportunity and they go forward with it when everybody's telling them no. I think it's fantastic. So I love stories like that. You've been paying it forward to entrepreneurs, it seems, quite a bit lately. You're known, I think your reputation is for having a really keen tactical strategic mind. Certainly people must be asking you all the time, well, how do I do what you did, Alan? I actually don't. Yeah, I actually don't have people ask me. I've laid pretty low up until recently. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of entrepreneur types in Dallas. I mean, maybe like traditional business, like banking and retail and restaurants and stuff like that. But I have a really hard time finding other digital entrepreneur types here in Dallas that aren't doing like software apps. I feel pretty isolated here in regards to that. And I don't have a huge online presence either. So I really don't get a whole lot of people, you know, coming up to me for advice. But I've had so many people help me in the past. 
and I think I can help people now. So I'm just kind of putting myself out there. Alan, thank you for joining us on the TMBA podcast. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Of course, man. Glad to finally be on. <laughs> Big shout to Alan Walton. What a crazy, wonderful story. What a fun time. Ian, one of the longest interviews. We just had so much to talk about. I think there's a lot more from a like, tactical perspective that Alan could bring to the table in the future. So I appreciate him donating his time coming by and sharing his success and the mistakes with others. We also have like a sort of an interview outline with some points and helpful points and tips that didn't make it into the interview, which we're going to post at this very post at tropicalmba.com slash spy guy. Ian, Alan had like a six page outline that he wrote the night before. It was incredible. He stayed up late. Doesn't surprise me. This is maybe you could say in the early days, what made Alan not successful. It maybe it made it difficult for him to be good at school or whatever because he was so meticulous, so focused or whatever. Now he's focusing all this stuff on his own business. And it's like, look what happened. It blossomed for him. And it's no surprise to me when you see how engaged he can be in projects that you know he makes his business success. He made this interview a success. Recently, I was hanging out with Alan in Barcelona. He's location independent. He goes to conferences all around. And so we were at the DC conference in Barcelona. And he was saying to me, why don't you guys have so many comments on your show? What's going on? People used to comment all the time. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. Maybe we used to be more controversial. <laughs> we used to be a little bit more confident in what we were saying. And people were like, why are you so confident? What's going on, guys? You don't know nothing. But what I'm all saying this to say, if you want to give a shout out to the spy guy to see the tips that he's got, some reading recommendations, check out tropicalmba.com slash spyguy. And give Alan a shout. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you guys. He loves helping other entrepreneurs. Ian, your thoughts on today's episode? It's interesting to me that somebody in Alan's position, right? Like they're a salesperson, they're at the top of their game, they're selling these products, and then they transition into selling their own products. And I think that that's like a pretty natural progression for some. For others, it never happens. And I think it's like, it's unfortunate for those that want it, right? So let's imagine. I'm really into speakers lately, by the way, Dan. I'd like to have a conversation with you about that at some point. Like high-end vintage audio. High-end vintage audio, like the sort of the big JBL speakers that you put next to your TV and stuff like that. Okay. It's coming back, man. If you want to get into it, now's the time. Prices are only going up. <laughs> Anyways, you're selling high-end audio at a store. You outperform everyone else in the store, and there are stores like this. You know all the clientele. They come directly to you, blah, blah, blah. And you're sitting there wondering, like, why don't I own this store? Or why don't I own my time? Or why do I have to come in here? Like, couldn't it be cool? Or wouldn't it be cool if I was running the show? Because you have all the power, right? All the customers come to you, you're making all the commission, you're making all the sales. And some people, they just never make that leap. You know, they just end up there promoted to manager, or whatever it might be. And I think a guy like Alan recognizes his talents and says, you know what, this is good, but it can get better. And making that leap, being able to identify yourself as a leader, as someone that can run a store like that, I think that that is what Alan did. And for a lot of people, that shift never happens. And I think it's kind of unfortunate for those that want it to happen. You know, it's often a so close yet so far away sort of situation. And the so close part of that is the mechanics. The actual mechanics 
of starting a business are relatively simple, but the so far away part is the part you brought up. It's the mindset. It's the confidence. It's the ability to be persuasive, to be a leader, to interact with others, to think of yourself as someone who can do that day in and day out. It's no small task. It's not buy a program online and follow this easy checklist. That's for damn sure. Nope. It's take some risks and have some confidence in yourself and you know understand the opportunity. And I think you're exactly right to say so close yet so far away. Well, I hope you guys dug this one as much as we did. And if you liked hearing from Alan, we've got more after the music bumper. For those of you that are into books, behind Alan during this interview, there was this well-stocked bookshelf. And I couldn't help but ask him about it and have him pull down some books that really inspired him along his journey. So we're going to talk about that after the bumper. This one is going to be posted at tropicalmba.com slash spyguy. We'll roll the music now and we'll be back next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Okay, so I have, of course, for our work week. So this book came out like 11 years ago, but I still think it's incredibly relevant because a lot of people see it and they criticize it because of the name. And I found that if a book has a terrible name, it's probably really good. <laughs> and so for our work week, a lot of people see it as like doing the bare minimum and just getting by and not wanting to like build a real business and all this other stuff. And I don't believe that at all. I think it's about creating the life that you want. So reality is negotiable is what Tim says. And I think that's true. I think that you can create a lifestyle business. If you put in a lot of work, you could do something like that. Or you can even create like an amazing business. You and I both know business owners that are doing seven, eight figures in sales. And for our work, we had a huge impact on them. And they're still working like 40 hours a week or, or more than that. It's more of a mindset thing than anything else. So then the second one is the Millionaire Fast Lane. You've read this one, right? Yes. This is by MJ DeMarco. Right. I never heard of him, but a friend of mine that I met at a conference, we were chatting in the lobby of the hotel, and he gave me a copy of this book. I thought that it was a great compliment to the four-hour work week. You know, he's got three different classifications for people. So the sidewalk, the slow lane, and the fast lane of building wealth and how to actually go about moving between those lanes. And I thought it was fantastic. It's been a while since I've read it, but I really, really enjoyed it. And those are typically the two books that I recommend when I see somebody that I think might be going down the path that I previously went down. How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big by Scott Adams. Huh. Have you heard that one? Scott Adams is the guy who wrote the Dilbert cartoons. Yes. This is interesting. Is he an entrepreneur? Do you consider him an entrepreneur? Oh, totally. Yeah, definitely. So he came up with the Dilbert comic, you know, I guess decades ago. 
and licensed it all out himself. And in this book, he basically charts out his path of, you know, just going through the corporate grind and how he wanted to be a cartoonist and explains how everything fell in place for him to do that. The part that fascinated me the most was that he optimizes for skills. And so he has something that he calls a talent stack, which basically means he's not the best cartoonist in the world. He's not the best comedian in the world. He's not the best, you know, salesman in the world. But he's extremely successful because he's just good enough at each one of those individual skills. And together, they're very powerful. And so I think that if I could give any book to myself back when I was 18 and just graduated from high school, I think that might be the top. It would definitely be one of these three. All three of them are fantastic. But the Scott Adam ones I read at the end of last year, and I really came away quite impressed with him. And I think the talent stack is really important for listeners of the show as well, because with those things, you're optimizing for skills. Skills are great because even if you don't become an entrepreneur, you know, there are skill sets that you need to be successful in jobs that you take later on down the road. The traditional method has been go to college and get a four-year degree and you stay down that path, even if you're not really sure what you want to do. You're going to end up going to college for four years for it and 100000 in debt, and then you're on that road. Whereas if you optimize for skills, then those are largely transferable between jobs that you take. So it might be social skills, it might be selling skills, it might be marketing skills, that sort of thing. Digital marketing, for example, for people who are just starting out, I totally recommend learning SEO and PPC because you can very easily start your own independent agency manage, you know, five to 10 accounts all on your own without having to hire any employees and suddenly bought yourself a bunch of freedom where you can work from that laptop, move to Thailand and live on the beach if you want to and have your own, you know, business. But if you want to, you can go and work for another agency later on. All of these things are transferable is what I'm getting at. They're like assets. Yeah, it's like an asset. Exactly. What's the extra credit book, Alan? Can I get it? controversial here (laughs) depends how controversial it's not that controversial well some people are gonna explode and be angry with me okay there's a book called win bigly okay by scott adams this is controversial yeah so it's called win bigly persuasion in a world where facts don't matter and it's all about the 2016 election but it's told through the lens of persuasion So the first half of the book is simply, what is persuasion? It's kind of like Robert Cialdini's book, Influence. And he explains, what are the weapons of persuasion? It might be like confirmation bias. It might be fear. It might be all sorts of different things. Tribalism. It might be, who knows? And so the first half of the book, he makes the case and explains that persuasion is incredibly powerful. Humans think of themselves as being very rational, but... Maybe we aren't so much. And then the second half of the book, he takes all of the examples in the first half and applies them to the 2016 election to explain why Donald Trump won. 